You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. I'm not kidding you, Angie. There's just some amazing facts with this one. Like the evolution, I'm thinking, how in the heck did these giant tortoises end up on the Galapagos Islands? What can they teach us? This is how this, and among many other things he saw on the Galapagos Islands, including the tortoises' shells and things like that, helped him develop his theory of natural selection Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. So Angie, we're going back to the place where you're going to spend your 10th anniversary, right? And that's coming up? Yes, and my retirement. And your retirement, yes. (laughs) <laughs> got a plan, big, big, big plans. So yes, although yes. at this rate, at the rate I'm going, retirement looks to be like 50 years off. So, you know, uh, yeah. but yes, the Galapagos. I know, I know. I, I got to go. I've got to go there. It is, we're heading back and we're covering the, what, the most iconic animal from the Galapagos Islands, right? Definitely the biggest. Uh, yes. And yeah, probably one of the more iconic uh animals in the world, I think. I mean, there's, I've been very blessed uh, over the past 10 years to be able to hang out with three Galapagos tortoises at John's Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo. And Mm -hmm. they do some really nice behind the scenes interactions with them where you can watch keepers target train them and actually get up close and personal and see how big they are. And the ones Mm -hmm. at the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo are teenagers. They are not even full grown and they're still humongous. No, it's, they're amazing. I remember when I was there running research and having the students conduct, teaching students how to do animal behavior and the zoo students there doing a project with them. I remember it. And it will come up later in this podcast because I was just, it was, oh, it was that was such an amazing, fun project to work with, work with the, the kids on. But anyways, they found some interesting results, which have to do with nutrition. So we will yeah, get there well, later in the pod. It's just been such a fun week prepping uh, for Galapagos oh, tortoises yeah. because uh, disclaimer here, and I know I can speak for Chris as well, for all of our herp fans and reptile experts out there, 
we will do our best to uh, describe the physiology and things like that of the Galapagos tortoise, but it's always shocking to me, Chris, whenever we cover a reptile or a bird or a fish, mm-hmm. how much I don't know. I mean, I know. I understand, of course, the physiological processes because that's what we were lucky enough to study a lot of these physiological mechanisms and just the terminology, right? I always, when, I te- when I'm teaching my students, I say half the battle with science is that it's a foreign language. Mm-hmm. Once you understand the language, then you can start to decode what it, it's actually trying to say. So I know a lot about that from all of our coursework and all of our scientific studies, but we're, we do mammals. <laughs> so, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, so this is all, it's always, I forget how fun it is for me because I actually learn so much. And so hopefully we'll, we'll do these giant reptiles justice on the podcast today because they are so cool. I mean, oh, yeah. we get I to mean, talk about uh, evolution. Uh, I dorked out on evolution, which is usually, yeah. that's usually your jam, but I just couldn't yep, control yep. myself. We'll talk about yep. natural selection. I mean, yeah. their behavior. That's, I sent you some fun uh, behavior yeah. videos last night just to make you yeah. giggle about male tortoises and their, their fights. So, yeah. It's yeah, uh, <laughs> exhilarating. No, there's <laughs> just, I'm not kidding you, Angie. There's just some amazing facts with this one. Like the evolution, I'm thinking... How in the heck did these giant tortoises end up on the Galapagos Islands? Like that was a major question I had. Their shells, talking about the different shell types, how do they write themselves? How do they live to be so long? Like there are a lot of questions to be answered in this podcast. Amazing species, one of the world's famous, most famous tortoises by far, or turtle. It yeah. has to be the Galapagos tortoise. It's just so. Stay tuned. It's 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 going to be an amazing hour uh, talking about these animals. So, just a couple of announcements, real quick. You know, Angie and I are, got some courses we're developing together. I'm just putting that little hint out now, but we'll be making some more announcements in a few weeks about that. We have been busy, folks. We have been super busy working, getting interviews. So we've got some really exciting stuff coming, you know, for our all of our fans. But I know Angie's dying to talk about what's coming up in July. So let's talk about the big thing we're doing in July. Oh, I thought you were gonna talk about my birthday because I'm a July birthday. Oh, that's true too. Yeah, we love <laughs> no, your birthdays kidding. coming up. Uh, I um, I'm a Cancer, so I'm a water sign, and it fits perfect with this month's theme because last year and this July. All Creatures Podcast is hosting a team for the Plastic Free Eco Challenge in July. And we'll put some information on our show notes. But what it is, it sounds a little scary, like plastic free. I mean, it's almost near impossible to go plastic free. That's not really what it's about. Uh, It's about all of us coming together who's interested. And there's a lot of fun different categories to pets, home, cooking, traveling. I'll be doing a lot of traveling in July. So I want to learn more tips about how to reduce my plastic while I am traveling. And so there's all these little categories that if you have interest in it, you can set a small challenge for yourself. Like last year and this year, I set a challenge to pick up five to 10 pieces of litter or trash a day. And whichever little mini challenge you select and want to learn about and complete, you get points. So it's a really fun way to gamify it, uh, to make Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. uh, just kind of have some checks and balances. And of course, if you don't participate for a week, no big deal. Like it doesn't matter. And this is a really, really cool uh, eco challenge set up by 
uh, zoos and aquariums across the country. And so there's all these different teams. And last year I wanted to beat Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo really, really bad, uh, but it didn't quite happen. So Michael, we were getting there. We we our our team last year did amazing, and so right now we have about uh, fifteen wonderful, excited members that have joined, and I would love to see that number double or triple in the next few days. You don't have to start July first; you can join July fifth, or uh, it's very just super flexible. And I think the best part is that you learn a lot while you do it because there's a, a news feed or a dashboard where you can put up recipes or products that you've liked, you know, maybe plastic-free deodorants or how to make toothpaste or just different things. So July is all about reducing our plastic consumption, which I think is incredibly important Fair. as we're going through this pandemic and critical PPE is necessary to help mm-hmm. slow the spread of the virus, especially for your medical mm-hmm. workers and face masks for uh, people in, in general. But they're ending up in our oceans, and the oceans are already in crisis uh, from plastic pollution. So this month, as individuals and then collectively as a team, things we can do to help reduce unnecessary plastics from going into the ocean, I think will really help. So I'm super excited about the Plastic Free Eco Challenge. Chris will put the information on our show notes, but you can just go to plasticfreeecochallenge.com. Org, and then under teams or list of teams, search for All Creatures Podcast. You can also go to either of our social media accounts like Facebook or uh, Instagram to also find mm-hmm. links to our page and instructions and how to sign up. So don't be scared. You can do it. Uh, yes. It's super fun. It's not, com- it's not competitive at all. It's just do what you can do, learn what you can learn. However, if you do rise to the top in points, you will get prizes. There will be prizes from All Creatures Podcast, plastic-free prizes, mind you. Uh, So, (laughs) yes, and I'll keep pushing that throughout the month of July. And then we're focusing on the oceans. I'm a -hmm. a water sign, a cancer Mm -hmm. symbol. So we're focusing on oceans in July and ocean life. And then we have some great interviews lined up to help us along with our Plastic Free Challenge and help us celebrate and learn how to conserve some of the ocean's creatures that are in dire need of our attention. Yeah, we're actually going to cover a couple species that we've been promising. And there's thousands of you out there listening to this. So we should Dude, be, I'm our so team pumped. should be in the hundreds. Like, it's going to be we awesome. We should be in the hundreds, I'm, yeah. I'm so pumped Please about this us. month. Yeah, yeah it's going to be yeah. amazing. And of course, too, if you're not driving, if you're listening right now at home, maybe hit pause. If you could go over to iTunes and give us a five-star review, or even better, a little description about why you love our podcast, that would be huge. This week, we have Rosalie Marks, who said she loves our podcast. So thank you, Rosalie. Uh, your comments were amazing. Uh, she Rosalie is a volunteer at the Boise Zoo in Idaho. Oh, that's over in Corbin's area. So uh, maybe they're friends. Yeah. And Rosalie is getting her bachelor's degree in fisheries and wildlife science and studying on the side or with a focus in wildlife biology. So thank you. Thank you for that. And I'm glad you love the podcast. And I really appreciate your shout out. Now, Angie, trying to describe the largest tortoise in the world is, you know, I've got the sizes. It's, you know, what, they're uniform dark gray with some reds and lighter gray. 
How yeah, would you describe I them mean, color-wise? Yeah. I, I think they're pretty iconic, so we probably don't have yeah. to go too, too much into yeah. the description, except for that their colors will range from a dark blackish shell to maybe like a dusty a dusty brown, like you said, some rust color mm-hmm. highlights in there. Uh, the head, neck, and legs are going to be brown, gray in color, uh, with some of the scales being darker brown than others. And their faces, though, I have to comment on them mm-hmm. because I, uh, you can easily look at a picture and see their adorable faces. But being up close and personal, and I've been able to feed them, uh, they're like little dinosaurs, their faces. Yep. I read a lot of dinosaur books to my kids and watch a lot yep. of dinosaur shows. And I mean, it looks like the face of like a Brachiosaurus or a Stegosaurus or one of those, of course, like, uh, or something similar to the dinosaurs that eat grass and leaves and all of that. Mm-hmm, I mean, they mm-hmm. just, they're, they're prehistoric and their long necks are just incredible. And the skin, I've been lucky enough to do a little scratchy scratch on their necky mm-hmm, neck area. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of, um, the, it's funny, the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo tortoises are named uh, Larry Moe and Curly after the three mm-hmm. stages. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah. and But that skin is really soft. So it's very, mm-hmm. very, they've got, I mean, as I age, trust me, I'm getting very envious of their neck skin. It's like super soft and it, it looks a little wrinkly, but it, it's very, very pleasant to touch. And the, when they do stretch their necks out, they can have pretty long necks. And we'll talk about that yeah, yeah. when we get to the behavior. And then their their feet are nothing to be forgotten about, I think, because their feet to me are cross between like a reptile and like an elephant. They have these really big, especially club feet because they're they're a land reptile, right? They live on land and they they needed to traverse a lot of area to find their food. And yeah, they just have these huge front feet and they have little toenails that extend from each toe, I suppose. And they're just darling. They're just, and they kind of walk a little bit bow-legged with their toes pointed in, and they're yeah, just so funky. cool. Yeah, yeah. They're just, they they're, they're so cool. And and their faces are usually the brown, maybe a little bit of yellow or green highlights uh, on their, like, nose and face area. And they just have very warm, gentle, wise eyes. They're Maybe it's because yeah. they lived for so long. And when I was reading, it was crazy to hear one of the researchers talk about tagging some of these Galapagos tortoises and saying like, yeah, so I'm like tagging this tortoise that was probably around when Darwin was here. Yeah. Like potentially, I mean, (laughs) you know, or uh, 1835. Yeah. 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 Just crazy. And so just, just a really cool animal. And we'll, we'll dive more into their shell physiology because I super dorked out about that. I'm just Mm -hmm. as, as a, once again, as a mammal physiologist, trying to understand like how did this shell develop and is it made of bone or keratin or what is going on here? So we'll talk about, we'll talk about that when we get in their physiology, but yeah, they're definitely iconic and they're big, Chris, right? They are indeed very big. So the males are are generally bigger than the females. Males can be up to six feet long from head to tail. So that's almost 1.8 meters across the shell. So if you go, the curvature can be up to five feet or one and a half meters. 
which is huge. I mean, that's almost as long as me. I mean, that's, that is big. And the males can weigh up to 570 pounds or 260 kilograms where the females are like 300 pounds or 130 kilograms. So, you know, there's some sexual dimorphism there. And that's now that's going to differ across species. That's probably the, the larger of all of them. Just impressive, impressive reptiles, Angie. Now, the range obviously is the Galapagos Islands, which mm-hmm. you go back to episode 118, Marine Iguana. I oh, that was a, a fun one. Job. That's one of our most oh. downloaded shows of all time. Yeah. yeah. Love it. It's amazing. That was an amazing episode. Anything Galapagos. It, you know, just amazing Bi- biodiversity, you know, how would you just, I mean, describe a little bit about the Galapagos Islands. They're just. Oh, they're so cool. I mean, so yeah. they're obviously off the West coast of Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands are an archipelago. So a lot of islands and there's basically 18 main islands uh, and then 14 minor islands. So mm-hmm. smaller in size and they're basically of volcanic origin and that they, they probably, researchers think that they probably arrived about 5 million years or so ago. And so researchers think they probably started developing around 5 million years or so ago and that they were never attached to South America, the continent. Mm-hmm. So the fact that any wildlife is there to begin with is quite amazing, right? Because yes, yes. It's not like there was a land bridge a long time ago or anything like that. These are islands in the Pacific Ocean, far off the Mm -hmm. coast of Ecuador. And because of its volcanic origin, it it still is changing somewhat. So it's just that really made me ponder the question, well, how did the animals get out of all these really cool, unique species of animals that are only found in the Galapagos Islands? How did they get there, especially the giant tortoise? I'm going to answer that. I will answer that one. I will. I'll get there. Are you going to give him the, yeah, you're not going to give him the answer now, are you? I mean, why not, right? <laughs> it's fine. You can talk about it. It's fine. No, I mean, it's, the, you know, the, the islands are 500 miles off the Ecuador coast, you know, 900 kilometers. And it's just, you know, there was no human habitation that they they've seen they thought the incas might have landed there years and years long time ago but there was no humans that that lived in the galapagos until the spaniards first came in and then later over time more europeans have landed in the galapagos well and of course chris one of the most famous people to land on the galapagos was charles darwin mhm and we uh, we almost considered Darwin for uh, Xander's name, but oh yeah, was, yeah, Xander was about <laughs> that's this, cute. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think well, our, maybe our next pet or something. But yeah, uh, I mean, we could do a whole podcast about uh, Charles Darwin and the theory of natural mm-hmm. selection, and my students and ecology and behavior have to, and evolution <laughs> definitely mm-hmm. have to sit through a couple of lectures focused solely on uh, the theory of natural selection and things like that. So we won't we won't uh, bore you too much with all those details, but obviously Charles Darwin is famous and he's famous for coming up with the theory of natural selection about mm-hmm. how basically species start to differentiate in order 
to survive. And a lot of this uh, differentiation is in their phenotype and so in the way that they look. And so probably even more famous than the Galapagos tortoises are, for as far as natural selection go, are Darwin's finches, where mm-hmm. all these different species of finches on the different islands that he landed on, he noticed that their beaks were different. And basically, in order for these finches to compete with one another, they had to have different food sources. Otherwise they would die, right? There'd be too much competition for either that certain nut or that certain grass or that certain berry. So their beaks had adapted over time for the certain types of food for them to eat. And this is how, this and among many other things he saw on the Galapagos Islands, including the tortoise's shells and things like that, helped him develop his theory of natural selection, which for the record is not completely solely his own. And I think that that's what always surprises students when I go over this in class, is that a gentleman by the name of Alfred Russell Wallace came up with this theory on his own around the same time. And they wrote back and forth to each other and presented joint papers together in 1858. And then Darwin went on to then write a year later in 1859, his super influential book, An Origin of Species, by means of natural selection. So Darwin gets a lot of the credit, but uh, Alfred Wallace should get more. Who? <laughs> he should get equal credit. And so. <laughs> Who's Alfred? I know. See, that's, I know. I know. I know. Is it I, I, know I didn't. I, I, I obviously wasn't going to yeah. name Xander Wallace, right? So, no, I mean, no, I'm no. part of the problem over here. Yeah. But, yeah, it, yeah. but, it, uh, but anyway, so. That's a little bit of Darwin history for you. And I love his the, the ship he sailed over and was called the Beagle. So I think Beagle's mm-hmm. kind of the HMS Beagle's another cool pet name or horse name or something. Um, but yeah, and so this theory of natural selection is, okay, they're on all these different islands and they're all a little bit different. And why is that? And what happened? And, and since Darwin's theory, over time, there's been a lot of other theories of evolution. Um, and we now with molecular genetics, we can almost watch it in real time, if you will. And so mm-hmm. we're understanding more about different ways that species uh, evolve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely the the Galapagos are just, in natural history and science, are just, just super important. Seminole well, Islands, where a lot of stuff came from. Yeah, you know, and that's what gets me super, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody listens to this podcast knows that evolution is kind of Chris's jam. He's Super dorky about it, loves it, reads it on its free time. I mean, that's, you know. (laughs) But for me. It just blows my mind, yeah. I know. But for me, that's why I was so excited this week and uh, and why you should care. And Chris, I think the second main reason to care about Galapagos tortoises is their conservation story. It's really hopeful. The tortoise numbers before Darwin and all that in the 1800s were maybe a quarter of a million. Uh, 250,000 mm-hmm. in the 16th century. And then thanks to whalers and buccaneers mm-hmm. and pirates and you know people needing food when they were traveling across the Pacific, uh, the tortoise numbers really, really declined to about okay. 3,000 in the 1970s. Okay. Yeah. That was before Very I was low. born. I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You I and was John. Born in 2000. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, and so, but, but they were down. And that's, once again, this is this hopeful part of international efforts by the Ecuadorian government and 
so many other researchers and scientists in the U.S. and several other countries coming together and being like, okay, we need to save this iconic species like now. And so today the Galapagos tortoises are listed by the IUCN as vulnerable. And they think that there's probably about 20 to 25,000 more or less. Mm -hmm. And now we'll go over in more details when we get to the different species of Galapagos tortoises that several of those species are critically endangered and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. but as a general number, uh, they have rebounded from the 1970s, but not from their historical numbers uh, before basically humans landed on the islands. Yeah, no, it's, it, it is a good story and there are some heartbreaking stories in there. So like the one it, I wanted to talk about was uh, one called Lonesome George. And Lonesome George was the last Pinta giant tortoises. And he was discovered on the island of Pinta in 1971, transferred to the Charles Darwin Research Station in Porta Aurora the following year. So he had been there in the early 70s, way before I was born. Now, they tried to breed Lonesome George, and he, he didn't breed with any of the females that they had. And then I, I don't know when the females died. I think it was around 2010 because in 2008, they found eggs and they were so excited. They thought that they were, they, he actually did breed and that she'd laid eggs and they were, you know, yeah, have babies, there were, but... I think there were three clutches of over the course that were produced. Yeah. They were just none, unfortunately were viable. Right. Right. Which is inner. I mean, which might be because since he was the last of his kind, they were breeding him to females of the next closest species. Right. Right. Yep. He was, they were trying to revive or somewhat revive the species and they weren't able to. And there's actually a really nice nature article about it that I'm going to link in the show notes because even though Lonesome George did die in 2012, he helped really push scientists and conservation officials, experts, whatever, to get in there and save the other species. Oh, yeah, Chris. I mean, I just got goosebumps because he really did push the science forward and really get people to wake up and and mm -hmm. say, hey, we need to change this and we need to make sure we're doing everything possible to save these tortoises. And yeah, and I think that he's really like a like an icon, right? Like a very, yeah. Oh, yeah. A, a very famous uh, Galapagos tortoise. And unfortunately, Lonesome George's story didn't really end up that, that, that great. Cause he passed well, away before so he far. could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So far. So what they've done is they've collected tons of samples mm -hmm. of him. They rushed in when they did his necropsy and they took a bunch of samples for potentially cloning him in the future. Now, Cloning, I, you know, I don't know, Angie and I've talked a little bit about this in the past. It's one thing we haven't done really a ton of in reptiles yet. So the cloning technologies for reptiles aren't quite there, but they do have his samples frozen in a frozen zoo. And on a more recent, super recent, as of February mm -hmm, 2020, mm -hmm. positive spin to the story is a team of conservationists and researchers working in the Wolf Volcano area of Isabella Island, 
believe that they have found some descendants or hybrids with very similar DNA to George's species. And so overall, they've found about 30 of these hybrid giant tortoises that they think are descendants from not only Lonesome George, but another extinct species. And so, as you mentioned, like with the with the zoo bank, or what was that called? Uh, um, frozen zoo. Yeah, the frozen zoo. And so, Chris, as you mentioned, with the frozen zoo, and then now these hybrids that have been found, super exciting. I mean, just like a couple months ago, right? Uh, which is just, once again, another hopeful conservation story, could potentially revitalize Lonesome George. And he will not have lived in in vain all those years trying to breed those females. So we'll keep you updated on on how this turns out. But there's also a really, really exciting and positive story. Yeah. Did you come across Diego? At well, all? yeah, and it's so yeah, Diego. So it's important because you know talking about why care. This is Pinta Island where there are no giant tortoises now, right? So think of that ecosystem where there is not seed dispersal. Some of the other things that the tortoises did to maintain the ecosystem. Yeah, they well they they're like they're like bulldozers. They put they plow through right. the grasses as they migrate to different areas of the island, and so they besides fertilizing the ground and seed dispersing, they also help generate new plant growth for a lot of the other animals that eat plants and or insects. They They'll churn up insects, too, when they're going through these tall grasses, which then the birds rely on that. So, yes, without them on Pinta Island, it's not a good thing. Well, and the answer is, well, you said Diego. Yes. So, Chilodonis hudensis. You're so good species. at that, Chris. Just well, Let's just pause for week. a second. Let's take <laughs> no, a giant tortoise week. pause. Gosh, good for you. <laughs> I just I'm so up. glad you're Anyways, my podcast so. partner. Keep going, so, George. Okay. So these ones are in Espanola. And this one, Diego, is interesting. He actually lived at the San Diego Zoo for 30 years. Yes. Which I'm actually, you know, if Rick Schwartz is listening, I'm wearing my San Diego Zoo shirt today just for him. But, you know, he was there for 30 years and then moved back to the Ecuador breeding program in the 70s. Now, the population of this species, what Diego was part of, in the 1960s was down to 15 specimens, 15 animals left. And only th- there was three males and 12 females. And so they started this breeding project, brought them all in under human care and started to, to reproduce where today there's 2,300 of the species. So in the end with 2,300 above 2,300 tortoises now today, Diego from the Española Island population he fathered 40% of all of those offspring. So he was just in the news, right? Uh, right, around 800. Yeah. And yeah. he was obviously a very romantic tortoise. He has, yes, he's he's far exceeded expectations. And so as of June 15th, so Diego, along with 25 other male tortoises, were released back into the mm-hmm. native Espanola Island. And of course, he's wearing a GPS wildlife monitor and will be monitored and all of that. But he gets to go live the rest of his life, which 
in tortoise years might be a very, very long time. Long time, yeah. Free in the wild. And I watched the video on his release. And moving a three to four hundred pound tortoise from a breeding the Darwin Breeding Center to the island, and then of course putting them in a safe place on the island is no small feat. And I will just tell you, mm-hmm. it required <laughs> This is this is this is why I love doing this podcast because yeah, conservationists yeah, yeah, yeah. and researchers across all nationalities have the biggest most amazing hearts and will do so much for the animals that they care about. Moving Diego and his buddies included the transportation of a truck, a boat, and a backpack. These researchers had special fitted, and I don't know exactly know how much Diego weighed. Maybe he was only two hundred pounds. I don't. know. Well, they know. did with the juveniles. The juveniles they did that. Yeah, right? yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, they hike with these giant tortoises on their backs on yeah, the humans, that, the yeah. researchers. Yeah. And to get them, and you know, off away from the coastlands because, and this is very like volcanic grassland, mountainous type terrain. So it's just pure dedication. And Diego is just such a positive conservation story. It just, this is why mm-hmm. I love this podcast. And so thank yeah, you no, I, to all the yeah. researchers and conservationists and volunteers I'm not able to name that made all this possible, but you guys are heroes in my book. No. And that's, I mean, that's conservation optimism, right? So that's why yeah. it's just the Galapagos tortoise is just so fun to talk about. There's so much, just not only fun stuff to talk about a tortoise, but this conservation story in the Galapagos Islands that I think we all have to go there and visit there and support Ecuador and its ecotourism. Yeah. It's just amazing. Now, the, the, to, to finally put the capstone on this or, or finish this train of thought that we've been talking about, they believe, or this researcher from Yale who, who does a lot of this tortoise research, she believes this isn't the answer for Pinta Island that they can take the tortoises from Española and move them to Pinta Island over time being isolated from the other population they will evolve into their own species she's she's and and, and I'll quote her in this study that I'll post on the show notes talking about Diego but she said introducing a breeding population of tortoises as pinta is a much more rational proposal than a, than cloning Lonesome George. Okay. You know, it's very hard right now. Mm-hmm. She said, in 100,000 years, through evolutionary processes, we'll have a pinta tortoise in the Galapagos. So she's like, 100,000 years is a time frame I can deal with, you know, from a, a, an evolutionary perspective versus millions and millions and millions of years. So basically what they're proposing is to move these tortoises from Española to Pinta Island so they can contribute into the food web and doing all the things that you said about earlier and, you know, help keep that island, it's that island's ecosystem in balance, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So that's dorking out on the Galapagos and Lonesome George, who you're not, I'm not done with him yet. I've, I've got another point to make about him a little bit later uh, but Diego the superstar breeder who uh, helped bring his his species back to life turtles date back so long in history the the really the first turtle dates back almost 300 million years to the They're dinosaurs. period yeah yeah well yeah I mean they were 
yeah, basically before dinosaurs evolved, you had turtles, mm-hmm. you know, swimming around. And then dinosaurs came later. Because remember, reptiles came before dinosaurs. Right. And yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. Now, tortoises date back about 55 million years. Okay. So as a species or as a, a group of animals, tortoises didn't come till the dinosaurs went extinct, which kind of makes sense because they were land dwelling. And it would be kind of hard with some of, I guess, the predator dinosaurs at the time, like T-Rex and some of the bigger ones might have preyed on them and had enough bite force to crush those shells or whatever. Mm-hmm. So tortoises really didn't have a chance to grab hold until those species went extinct. Then you gotcha. had turtles coming up, coming up on land and then just staying on land and evolving into tortoises. Now, you were going to talk about this earlier, and I just... I just <laughs> I, my big question in evolution was, how in the heck do you have these giant tortoises? Okay, not only the Galapagos, but the seashells, mm-hmm. right? These giant species and some other islands around around the world. But how in the heck did they get there? There was no land bridge. There's no natural predators on there, right? That could, unless they're little babies, like birds would eat the babies. But as an adult... There's no need for that Galapagos tortoise to have that big shell for defense, really. Right? I mean, there's nothing, there's no predators on those islands. So I'm like, how in the heck did they get there? Like, because they obviously didn't evolve on those islands, right? Correct. So how'd they get there, Angie? You want to, you've been itching, so I'll let you lose. How did they get there? <laughs> they floated. The only way to go. <laughs> They wrote the researchers. It's just crazy. I mean, it's just crazy. It is. Uh, researchers think they rode the Humboldt Current um, yeah. from the mainland of South America to the Galapagos. Yeah. And yeah. how many did this? And which islands did they land on? All of that, of course, is still a mystery. But yeah, they they would have to survive those uh, a thousand kilometer journey. And mm-hmm. tortoises are buoyant, so and they could breathe by extending their necks above the water. And when we get to their physiology and nutrition, too, we'll talk about how they are herbivores, but they can also go a while without food oh, and yeah, water. They time. can live off their fat reserves to create metabolic water and then, of course, uh, to create the energy they need. So they're not good swimmers, uh, no. so <laughs> it would have they would have needed or relied on this current to get there. Researchers think. So yeah, I mean, would you imagine being the turtle floating by the islands? No, I know <laughs> the ones that were lucky enough to land. Yeah, hopefully they could like you know? steer a little bit. But yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, this it's world is just amazing. It's just amazing. I've never. I mean, we did the, we had the vegetation rafts, right, to Madagascar, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then the vegetation rafts from Africa to South America. This was the first that, it's uh, just an animal that floated on its own. And there is some support. So there's some scientific support because in 2004, an Aldabra giant tortoise washed ashore in Tanzania, which was 740 kilometers from its home. And they said it was emaciated, but... It had barnacles on it. That's how they knew it was in the sea for so long. That it had barnacles growing on its seashell. So they wow. knew that it had been out to sea that long. So yeah. that's how they got there. It's just crazy. 
Well, and of course, with uh, the molecular genomics and the ability now to analyze mitochondria DNA, they've been able to show that they don't really have super close relatives as far mm-hmm. as of, as far as the phylogenetic trees go, but they think that they may have evolved from a similar species in South America and are most currently related to the Chaco tortoise yep. um, from yep. South that's currently resides in South America. So, yep. but then when they yep. got to the island, then they did all this adaptive radiation to create mm-hmm. the anywhere from a, a le, currently 11 species, but there used to be 15 species of giant Galapagos tortoise on the different islands. Yeah, they weren't swimming back and forth to the different islands. Like once they landed. Oh, there, yeah. They were like, heck no. Relatives. <laughs> yeah. They they kind of irradiated out. And that's why, you know, the, the researcher from Yale said she could deal with 100,000 years because they would evolve rapidly. And you may ask, like, where are giant tortoises now in the mainlands? And, and they're not there. I mean, besides Australia, it's very unique. So shout out to Baby Langer. I'm going to talk about her later, too. She works at the Australia Reptile Park and was talking about Harriet, a very famous Galapagos tortoise. But besides Australia and Antarctica, there was giant tortoises on every landmass. Then they disappeared. And they were only found on the Galapagos, the seashells, and then the Mascarenes Islands. But those giant tortoises died out in 1804. Again, sailors taking them off, and, and so they they died out. Now, the the one I told you that washed up in Tanzania, he or she, I think it was a he, uh, was from the seashells, and there's only a single surviving population on the Aldabra, Aldabra Atoll. Right, the so, Aldabra tortoise is uh, definitely yeah. a, another species yeah. we will need to cover for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, very in, very interesting. They floated there. Now, tortoises, Angie. I, this is interesting too. I would have thought there would have been more, but there's only 43 species of tortoises in the entire world. I thought there would be a lot more than that. I just do. Yeah. You no, know, that's why this podcast we, is so fun for us. I hopefully for our listeners too. <laughs> Yeah. We have 103 species of opossums, right? But only, and that's just in the Americas. But we only have 43 species of tortoise in the entire world. In the entire yeah. world, which now what? Ten of them are the Galapagos giant tortoise. Sure. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm going to put the map up, and you can go and, and see in the show notes where they're from. But the the family of tortoises is Testunidae. Mm-hmm. And the Chilodonis nigra is, is kind of the general complex name, but then you have all the different ones: the Abigandani, Darwini. I like that one. Hudensis, we talked about. Fantastica, Porteri, uh, Vicina. So all of those different species in the Galapagos. So yeah, Chris, there was originally 15 species of Galapagos tortoises. Mm-hmm. Originally, it was thought subspecies, and now some of the more current research search and DNA analysis says species. They're different. Mm-hmm. Um, that only uh, 11 are currently survive to this day. Uh, six are found on separate islands, and um, five of them are on the island Isabella. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now... Okay, largest turtle ever. We have a new champion. 
that has been discovered recently. Ooh. So let me ask you where in the world, Angie? Come on. South America. Oh, it's got to be South America. (laughs) Always, always. Yes. So they just discovered this in Venezuela, an 8 million year old turtle shell that was nearly eight feet long. Wow. And had one of the researchers laying next to it. It's insane. So that's like a VW bug, right? Yeah. 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 And it weighed 2,500 pounds. Holy macaroni. Yeah. So this was a, a... Large, massive turtle, which the other one, I think it was Archeon, and we talked about it in a, in a podcast, but it just got upended by this one. And this is Stupidemis geographicus, mm-hmm. died out about 5 million years ago. And one of these shells, they found this lone caiman tooth fossilized, which freaking massive, was massive. Wow, wow. So not only did you have monster turtles, you had monster caimans down there. With monster rats I'm telling and you, monster bears. Any of our any of our uh, cinematic or videographer friends that are listening, you need to make this movie. Like Jurassic yes. Park, but not Software. with just dinosaurs, <laughs> with yeah. all the massive mammals and reptiles and just bring it to life. Yeah. I need to see this. Because humans did see some did of survive it. with some of these. Yes. Some of it. Yes. Not not this one, no. but some of it. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know, so all right. So we just talked, I just gave a shout out to Baby Langer. She works at the Australian Reptile Park. Harriet. Do you remember Harriet? I don't, we talked about Harriet at some point. But Harriet was, because we were talking about the age of animals, mm-hmm. some of the oldest animals on earth. And what, do you remember which one's the oldest one on earth? Well, I think a, a barnacle's the oldest or, no. a, or a scallop. Hypothel- hypothetical. This is probably the oldest living animal on Earth. We just haven't dated one because it's near impossible. The shark? Covered it. No, we covered it like species episode like 50. Um, oh, you have mom whale? brain. Oh, my God. No! <laughs> the, the whales live to be 200. We did cover that. What's the animal that can almost live forever? It should. Oh, the immortal jellyfish. Yeah. So that's, that's probably our oldest. That's different, though. That has a different... It can like... I mean, I, I, we have to go back and listen to that pod. So, but yeah. yes, I think <laughs> well, theoretically, theoretically there's one that's probably a thousand years old, possibly, possibly yeah. you would yeah. think, you would no. think, I mean, theoretically there could be one that's a million years old. You just don't know. All right. So then take them out of the equation. You're right. There's like the mean clam. The clam. Right? That's Which what it was. Like, yeah. Yes. He's like 500 years old that they accidentally and killed. Then the Gr- Greenland shark. 400 years old. See, I'm then not we... totally off. No, this. no. Yes. And then we did the bowhead whale, which That's was what, one. 220 years old, roughly. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. found an old harpoon from the 1800s in one. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. So now you get down, I think this is where we talked about. So Harriet was 173 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was collected by Darwin in 1835. And she lived in Australia at the Australia Zoo, and she died in 2006. It's incredible. Like, it's crazy. That's what? insane. That's... It, it was a Galapagos tortoise? Yeah, obviously. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So currently the oldest tortoise in the world is Jonathan. He's 187, and he lives in St. Helena Island. Okay. And the all-time what ta- record. What, what species is it? He's a seashells giant tortoise. Mm-hmm. And the all-time world record holder for the 
oldest tortoise, and this was a radiated tortoise that was given to the, the royalty of Tonga by Captain James Cook, died in 1965 at the age of 189. Wow. So That's incredible. They live, they live a long time. So, Angie, being the dorks we are, we want to answer, how in the heck can these animals live so long? What's your guess? Or what's your research find it? I mean, I know you. You're, you're super brilliant with this. You know this. Well, Chris, there's probably several things going for them, but I mean, it has to be their metabolism and absolutely, probably yeah. there's some cellular base as far as their slowing of their telomeres, uh, degrading within their cells. Uh, but I, uh, I actually didn't, uh, stumble across any of the papers. So what did you find? No. So, I mean, in general, okay. So in general, the feeling is metabolism, right? Slower metabolism. I should live to be like a hundred and something then. My metabolism <laughs> is creepy you're a crawly. Stick. You have like a hot, you have a hot, you're a stick. Oh you like my gosh. I, I just got back from a run and it was funny because I, I, I felt like a tortoise. Uh, I think I was moving slightly <laughs> right. faster than them. Uh, the Galapagos yeah. tortoise cover about 300 meters an hour. So I think I was slightly faster than that, but. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not okay. Much. But no, I mean, you you know, you, okay, so low metabolic rate generally means you live longer. So like the hummingbird, we did that. They, they live like three to five years. Sure, or rabbits. Yes. A lot of small mammals rate. have very, very, uh, have very high metabolic rates. And yeah, they, they ultimately don't live that long. Now, coming back to Lonesome George, how he has helped his species and our understanding in science. So one of the things they did is Yale sequenced his whole genome. Okay, so like Angie was saying, with a lower metabolism, your body isn't producing things like free radicals, which are particles that damage DNA, damage protein. You have less cells dividing, so your telomeres stay longer, longer. So all of this stuff, with Lonesome George contributing, they have, you know, they believe is why they live so long. So like the researcher at Yale said, they found that Lonesome George possessed a number of gene variants linked to DNA repair, hyper, a good immune response and cancer suppression, not seen in, in small or shorter lived vertebrates. So yeah, they, this is what has allowed them to live to be almost 200 years old. Yeah, getting back to, to to how fast these animals are, you know, super speed, like you this morning running, I'm sure you beat them, <laughs> oh, right? Well, and I got up so early because I'm like, oh, it'll be cool. But in Florida in uh, the summer. No way. Uh, it, I mean, the temperature no wasn't bad. It was like 75 degrees Celsius, but I forgot about the humidity. So, yeah, uh, it Fahrenheit. was, uh, I, <laughs> I, I, was I was, I think I was going faster than the, in the Galapagos tortoise, but probably not by a lot. Yeah, no. And I mean, they, okay. You absolutely outran the tortoise. I mean, they <laughs> go hope, right? along <laughs> at 0.16 miles per hour. Or okay, yeah, I think I, I think I was rocking between ten and eleven, so miles yeah, per hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they they don't go very fast, but you know when they do, like Angie said earlier, their their front legs are turned inward and and they never go in a straight line. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about, Angie, was their shells. Okay. Yes, Chris, I went down this rabbit hole. And in fact, uh, uh, even John, because I asked him a couple questions, he's like, and he's not a reptile expert by any stretch yeah. of his imagination. And he didn't know, which is 
fun for me. Oh, what? Oh, yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, and so he, of course, being my lovely dorky animal scientist husband, he uh, he wanted to learn as well. So we kind of learned together all about oh, their, cool. okay. their shell or their carapace. Okay. Yes. That's, that's the technical term for the top shell. And then the undershell, their quote unquote belly shell, is the plastron. Yeah. Well, okay. So I didn't know, like really, I had a couple questions with it. First, I found out there's different shell types. Yes. And then I was like, how in the heck do they right themselves when they fall over? Like you always think of turtles and tortoises when they get on their backs that they can't flip themselves, but they can. So that kind of led me down my little rabbit hole. So of the, of the, the well, there's three kind of types, but the two specific types are the domed shell type and then the saddleback shell type, which is a little bit flatter. And I just, it's crazy because this is an evolutionary thing that Darwin was kind of talking about. The saddleback shell types live in the lower elevations and the drier elevations of the Galapagos. And that has to do with what they eat. And the shell type allows them to extend that neck so they can eat some of the bushes and the cactus. Where the dome types are found in more of the the higher temps, the, the the colder, more grass, green plants up there, more vegetation. So they don't have to extend their necks as much. Because if we go back to marine iguanas, we talked about the differences that you know, yeah, these are volcanic islands, but there's so many different ecosystem types there. It's not desert. You know, you get a mix of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know because I've never been there, but looking at all the videos yeah. uh, this past week, it looks stunning. Now, Angie, really quick, and, and I know we've been dorking out a long time, so I'm going to make, I'm going to, I'm going to sum up this, this study as quickly as I can. And this was a study in 2017 titled, Self-writing potential and the evolution of shell shape in Galapagos tortoises. And because they say they, you know, the Galapagos Islands, volcanic rocks, these tortoises are walking on irregular surfaces, so they they can trip or or slip and fall on their backs, you know, especially with all the different lava rocks. So self-writing is very important for them so they can survive. So the hypothesis was that the the saddlebacks that are in the lower elevations where it's drier, there's more uneven land and, and, and there's more potential for them tripping and flipping on their backs, that they actually thought that's why they kind of evolved these saddlebacks, not just so they could reach their necks out. So what the scientists know is when observing these, these tortoises, that when they do fall on their backs, the saddlebacks, the way they are able to right themselves, it's a combination of pushing with their neck. And so their necks can extend. I'm guessing I didn't find anywhere like specific how long their necks can get. I'm thinking it's like at least three feet, three to four feet long. I mean, it, it, it extends really, I don't know. What do you think? Three feet, two feet? Yeah. A while. A while. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big, and I'll put a, a picture on the show notes of it. But they, it's a combination of using their necks and then waving their legs to get momentum to turn over, whereas the domed just rely on waving their legs. 
And they actually found that it, the saddleback tortoises require more effort, but that's kind of how they write themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they, though what they argue in the paper basically is the saddlebacks have evolved to not only be able to reach more food, but it actually helps give them an advantage on being able to write themselves quicker and easier compared to the domed. So awesome. Well, and it's funny. Uh, that's why this podcast is so neat because you, I didn't go down that route at all. I had a little bit more interest in what is a shell made of, especially after uh, teaching anatomy and physiology and just really trying to understand, I mean, what a weird mm-hmm. turtles in general, like wh- how did that even happen? What's it made of? And so Chris, the shell bone is made up of these like calcified, so bone like plates that are a fusion of the rib bones and then extensions from that. And then there's an outer dermal layer. So think of like your epidermis, like your skin basically of connective tissue and collagen fibers and all of that with blood, vessels, nerves. And then there's an inner dermal layer that has basically kind of, so the inner part closest to the the bone is, has bone plates. So that has like osteoblasts and other types of bone cells. And so the outer shell, the part that you can touch is made of keratin, but because there's like, it's very active, it does grow, right? So that it grows with the turtle or grows with the tortoise. Mm -hmm. And tortoises and turtles have several differences. We didn't really go over them, but in general, turtles are more aquatic oriented. And of course, tortoises are on land. And Land tortoises, they're scoots. So scoots is the fancy name for each basically shell piece on the carapace. Is made of keratin and it grows and expands with the turtle. It is not shed. So aquatic turtles actually will shed this like a snake does to -hmm. help it grow and expand. But land tortoises do not. They're scoots, the, the keratin that the scoots are made of expand usually from basically the base and then go upward. And of course, then the bottom, the plastron of the shell of a tortoise or a turtle is a fusion of some rib bones, but primarily the clavicle and the sternum. And it has the same, basically the same anatomy as the top of the shell, as far as there's the the bone layer and then kind of the skin, if you will, epidermal layer that's keratin based. And so just so cool. I mean, and they can, so they can heal their shells. And that's why if you find an injured tortoise or turtle, you want to work with a veterinarian or a local rehabber because they're, they, they can just like how we, if we break a bone or a fingernail or whatever it is, it can, it, it can be healed with the proper treatment. So Mm. yeah, I just, um, it was just, just so fascinating to me. And, I, and I'm probably not even doing it justice because once again, it's it's a little bit out of my comfort zone, which is why John and I had to dork out on it so much uh, this past week. No, it's, yeah. I, I bet you when you go back, you're just, you're going to see them now after doing this episode. You're going to be yeah, like, oh my gosh. I know. Yeah. And the other thing that I learned for, uh, for all the herpers out there, they probably know this, but uh, when you see in tortoises where their uh, scutes are dome shaped, like almost look like spikes, that's actually not a good sign. That's a sign of some kind of either nutritional or metabolic issue uh, and that they're not growing 
the right, they're growing more up right. than expanding out. And out, so, yeah. yeah, usually it can be cured with uh, either a change in nutrition or proper, maybe they're not getting enough vitamin D, uh, things like mm-hmm. that. And so I just thought that maybe that was a different type of tortoise that had more of like a bumpy shell. But no, typically that's that's not how it is. It's uh, usually a nutritional thing. Okay. Okay. Well, talk about nutrition. They're, they are herbivores. They eat prickly pear cactus, uh, fruit, some grass, leaves, flowers. We talked about how they can go long times without eating or drinking. Mm-hmm. The, the really quickly, the, the study that the students did at Santa Fe College, I thought was cool. They did color preference with target training. So they looked at color and shape. Mm-hmm. And that they found that the tortoises respond better to red versus blue. Yes. And they didn't have a specific shape. Mm-hmm. But then you come to find out that they, they are attracted to red color because berries, things like that, that they may eat, which makes sense, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they. I mean, who doesn't love a good strawberry, right? I mean, yeah, I know. I know. Or so, blueberry. Yeah, you got blueberry. blueberries. So, so. Uh, well, in... Speaking about their senses is that they do have pretty good eyesight, um, and researchers think that their uh, olfactory or their smell must be pretty good because that's how they find each other for breeding because they typically live pretty solitary until it's uh, breeding time. And scientists and researchers think that their hearing is definitely different than ours. It's not as acute, and that they can feel vibrations and have uh, the ability to to gather information from sound, but it's going to be probably on a different level um, as like a mammal's. So, but yeah, I mean, they definitely, they definitely, like you said, they know how to get where they're going and find the fruits and the grasses that they want to eat. And so Chris, I also found out that uh, guava was brought in by humans. So most of the things brought in by humans to the Galapagos, like dogs and cats and rats and goats, which we'll talk about. Goats have been eradicated uh, because yeah, of their yeah. horrific uh, conservation threat to the Galapagos because yeah, they eat so much grass. Yeah. The humans brought in a lot of not good things for the animals in the Galapagos Islands, and the Galapagos tortoises love guavas, and it's one of their uh, one of their favorite food sources now. So that made me made me uh, giggle, and I also really appreciate the commentary that Galapagos tortoises are considered the gardeners of the Galapagos. And by gardeners, it's because they, as we mentioned earlier, are seed dispersers. And some of the seeds stay within the digestive tract, because it's slow metabolism, for up to a month. And therefore, it gets these seeds all over the island. Like, they don't cover a lot of ground in a month. We're talking, you know, 10, hundreds of kilometers, depending on where they're moving back and forth for food sources. And so while they're doing that, they are moving these seeds about and churning up all these insects and creating new undergrowth. And so I just love that. Gardeners of the Galapagos. Uh, yeah. 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 So what are some of the other cool behaviors they do? Yeah. Besides being gardeners. <laughs> well, so part of them being gardeners or gardeners of the Galapagos is that they, their movement and yes, it's slow, but it is, they are the, uh, the mega herbivores kind of like your favorite, the elephants, of yeah, the Galapagos. Yeah. And so Critical. they, you know, really pack down the soils and they create paths and new undergrowth vegetation, and of course, disperse seeds. And their movement is really, really critical to the islands. Now, depending on which species of tortoise it is, some have more annual or seasonal migration than others. Uh, 
But in general, what they do is they move up and down the volcanic mountains in search of food via seasonality. And as they travel along these paths uh, in search of food and migrate seasonally, if you will, these paths become part of the habitat, basically, part of the landscape. And as some of the Galapagos Islands have become more habitated by humans, they've put in roads and they've put in fences, and it's created a potentially a problem for this historic migration that they instinctively do, right, to find food and to stay healthy. So it's something that researchers are really trying to focus on as far as what do these movements mean? Because for some of the species of Galapagos tortoises, this movement or migration is key to their egg-laying uh, practices. And so if they're not, if they're blocked off by roads or fences or cattle or whatever it is, it can potentially be hindering their overall breeding, not only their nutritional aspects, but also their breeding aspects. And so uh, it's just really something that we need to keep our eye on. Angie, and then the behavior stuff, you showed me that uh, video, tintillating Mike Tyson fights between two male tortoises that it literally... I thought it was like super slow motion if it wasn't for the the play by play, you know. It was it's Oh my gosh, funny. Chris, I am cracking up. Yes. Yeah, so we'll we'll put yeah. the video on our show notes and yeah. it's two male uh Galapagos tortoises demonstrating male aggression. And I'm sure if you're a Galapagos tortoise, this it, it means a lot to them. But basically, they're both standing face to face with their necks, their long necks outstretched and kind of mouths like open and trying to basically make their neck taller than the other one. And sometimes even lifting up one front foot to, I think, get an edge. But although yeah, it, yeah. it is just so silly. It, uh, but, but in Galapagos Taurus language, that means a lot. And this is a male-to-male competition uh, because when ma- mature males, breeding males meet during mating season – which mating does occur year-round in the Galapagos, uh, and depending on the different species, there are some seasonal peaks between February and June. And so when these males meet up, they're going to stretch their necks out as tall as they can, open their mouth, open and close their mouth. Sometimes they'll, they'll butt heads or maybe try to bite each mm-hmm. other, but it's, it's all in slow motion. So, uh, But the typical winner is going to be the male that has the longer neck seems to be researchers think that's like what the female might be attracted to. And the male that realizes he has a smaller neck and just isn't as tough just backs down. So it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty, he backed uh, down. Benign. He did. He yeah. backed down. I saw yeah. him. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty, it's I pretty benign. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then anyways, when the, when the male does uh, basically, win a female or uh, wins dominance for their, the territory or whatever it is, um, he'll find a female and um, he's not super romantic. I don't think I would uh, be wowed uh, because basically he'll just uh, ram a female with his front shell, maybe do some love nipping on the legs. She'll uh, and then she'll basically be receptive or not. And, um, mm-hmm. and then the mating act occurs, which is, it's pretty well known in the animal kingdom um, because two things. Uh, number one, uh, Galapagos tortoises breed for a very long time. Uh, it can be an hour. 
And Chris, the second fascinating aspect uh, Galapagos tortoise breeding is that is that typically Galapagos tortoises don't make a lot of vocalizations. However, while the male is breeding the female, he makes these loud bellows that can be heard pretty far away, and he is mm-hmm. not shy. And so often if you go to the Galapagos or any of the breeding centers during that season, I mean, right there in front of you, that's where the video, the videos I was watching on YouTube are just yeah. uh, this very loud dinosaur-like bellow. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a unique sound to be heard. And uh, they, let's just say they're not quiet breeders. The males are not quiet at all. Right, but right. as far as breeding does go, Galapagos tortoises have internal fertilization, right? Which is why it takes hours or so or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then after they're done breeding, the female just leaves the male, may probably never sees them again, who knows? Um, And she'll walk miles to deposit her eggs in their historic um, egg laying spot. And once again, depending on the species, that could be closer to the shore or more up into the mountains. And so these are things researchers are trying to determine migration path they take and where they lay eggs to try to make sure that there's not roads and fences and things like that mm-hmm, in the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And once the female is bred, she'll usually travel to dry, sunny lowlands and to help keep the eggs warm. And she will dig a hole. And it can be about, I don't know, 12 inches deep. Um, and then she'll lay anywhere from 10 to 16 eggs, I think uh, on average 12, and they're about the size of tennis balls. Okay. So that gives you a little bit of a, a reference there. And so the amount of time, and then she leaves, she covers them up with sand. Um, I read somewhere she actually will pre soak the hole in, um, her urine so that mm-hmm. like, it doesn't like, uh, collapse and put too much yeah, pressure yeah. on the eggs. But so she buries them and then, and then she goes on her on her way. And these Galapagos tortoise eggs will incubate for anywhere from uh, three to eight months, depending on wow, okay. the season, the species, all of that. Um, yeah. And of course, we've talked about before, I know in sea turtles is a big issue. Uh, the warmer the sand, the more likely it will uh, produce females. So this potentially can be an issue with uh, global climate change. Um, but uh, the little baby Galapagos tortoises, they start their li- life off working, working, working to get out of that egg and then to dig their way out of the nest. The process to get out of the nest and ready to go can take up to a month where they can survive off of their yolk sac. And um, yeah, it's just really, I mean, they anybody who's ever watched like sea turtles get into the ocean. They're, they're mm-hmm. very determined, mm-hmm. right? They have a lot of instinctual yeah, uh, mechanisms yeah. going on. But uh, they have to fend for themselves. And unfortunately, since it takes them a while to grow into their massive giant Galapagos yep. tortoise size, a lot of them die within the first 10 years of life before they even yeah, reach yeah. sexual maturity. Yeah. I imagine that, you know, they're not that big size yet, so they can get picked off by birds and oh, right. lizards and or other reptiles mm-hmm. and snakes and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, conservation-wise, I know they don't breed till they're 25, 30. That's what makes it so hard for them. But like we talked about opening up, I mean, there's a lot of optimism. Look at an IUCN update in 2018. 
six species critically endangered. The Fernandina one is actually thought to be extinct. They just have to do they they, they have to do one more final extensive search to make sure there are none left before they call them extinct. Mm-hmm. But you know, some of these other species are, are are in trouble. But coming back, you know, like you said, and then you have three endangered, three vulnerable, and two for sure extinct, but probably, or what we say, five extinct, actually. So, yeah, I mean, it's a hopeful story, and there are a lot of people that are fighting so hard for the uh, giant Galapagos tortoises and working, and, and you can tell because a lot of their numbers are rebounding, and they've done their threats include humans, basically, unfortunately, and then all of our human-like things that we bring along with us. So cats, dogs, rats, you know, these kinds of things that are now on some of the islands. And goats were brought there, but goats have since been eradicated from the islands because they were just way eating all the grass and not saving any for the Galapagos tortoise. So there's definitely a lot of conservation attention and that's why their numbers are rebounding. But a lot of those critically endangered Galapagos tortoise that you mentioned are not out of the woods by, I would, none of them are. So uh, it's our job to, you know, utilize education and uh, proper ecotourism to help support uh, Galapagos tortoises. So who's out there? I know we're not going to need to to found an organization. There's a bunch out (laughs) there, but which one did you highlight this week? Yes. Well, uh, this week I'm going to highlight a group called Galapagos Tortoise Movement Ecology Program. And they can be found at www.gianttortoise.org or on Facebook. And we'll put the link on our show notes of Galapagos Tortoise Movement Ecology. And this program is a collaboration between the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology and the Charles Darwin Foundation and the Galapagos National Park. So once again, a lot of really prestigious bodies coming together to help learn more and conserve the giant Mm-hmm. Galapagos tortoise. And so they have several programs, but number one, as Chris and I was scientists, uh, they uh, love the fact that they they utilize science to understand Galapagos tortoise movement. So they have 47 GPS tags on four different species from three different islands. And they also are studying tortoise ecology, uh, their reproductive ecology. So some of those things I was just talking about. And probably one of the most important things they're doing is outreach and education uh, for people on and off the island about why the Galapagos tortoise is so important uh, for the ecology of the Galapagos, but then also just as a representation for conservation and everything amazing that the Galapagos have to offer. So definitely do yourself a favor and Galapagos tortoises a favor and go to www.gianttortoise.org and or like them on Facebook because the videos and the uh, the research that they share is quite impressive. And they have a nice website that really I actually learned a lot off of when I was researching for this podcast. So uh, it's just good to know that you have all these brilliant researchers and conservationists and students and interns uh, fighting for the Galapagos tortoises. Yeah, it just, uh, it's just, it's heartening. It's really heartening to read these stories and see what's going on with these tortoises. And, and just as soon as we open the world back up and we can start traveling again, I highly recommend that you travel to Ecuador and 
don't make the mistake Angie made in her young 20s and not get on that boat that takes five days to get out there. <laughs> well, Chris, I probably would have gotten on it if it was like a boat, but this was more of like a, a con- container, a ship container transporter or something. I was like, I don't know. That I've got a lot of my, my girlfriend, my, 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 dodgy, my yeah. best friend, Nani, she was so adventurous. She was like, not a problem. And I, I was a little bit more conservative of the two saying like, I don't yeah. know. But now I look back and I should have gotten on that. I know you had other places to go, but if you want that story, go to episode 118. Marina Guanas hear how Angie almost got on a ship container (laughs) or boat, whatever, over to the Galapagos and decided not to and uh, went and went off the Amazon, did wonderful stuff. But we'll leave it at there. It's just, I think, obviously, this one was special to both of us. Just amazing, amazing species. I hope we did it justice. It's just a special place in the world. I, I know we're going to come back to the Galapagos again here in, in a few dozen pods with something. And uh, thanks for listening, you know, and, and share this stuff. Send this to friends. It helps us grow. We love you. We thank you for, for being listeners and subscribers. And just uh, can't wait to talk to you again next week. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.